Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report. Good morning. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. L.A., Orange, and San Bernardino counties, which have all been hit hard by the pandemic and under the strictest shutdowns, could start reopening parts of their economy in the coming days if they continue to reach state coronavirus benchmarks. Here's Barbara Ferrer, L.A. County's public health director, speaking yesterday at a press conference. We have returned to daily case numbers that are now what we call our pre-surge levels. And this is wonderful news. Moving from the state's most restrictive purple tier to the red tier would mean the ability to reopen more middle and high schools, as well as indoor dining, museums, and movie theaters at a 25% capacity. L.A. County is also set to receive its largest single-week shipment of coronavirus vaccines in the coming days, over 300,000 doses. Meanwhile, Santa Clara County says it won't take part in the state's new centralized vaccine distribution system run by Blue Shield. County Executive Jeff Smith says Santa Clara won't sign a contract with the health insurance company because the county doesn't believe it would do anything to improve the speed or efficiency of vaccine distribution and would add another level of bureaucracy. According to the LA Times, several counties have expressed similar concerns about the planned takeover, which is scheduled to be completed by the end of March. So far, only Kern County has signed a contract with Blue Shield. The school reopening bill signed by Governor Gavin Newsom last week sends money for districts to help them restart classroom learning. But it doesn't force schools to reopen. Some critics of the legislation say the state should abandon its hands-off approach of local control and education and use a heavier hand to get kids back in the classrooms. With more, here's KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarotti. If former state Senator Gloria Romero has learned anything in her decades of work on school issues, it's that education is a Byzantine labyrinth in California. It makes no sense. You start with thousands of school districts across the state. Each one has its own, typically locally elected board. They negotiate with local unions. Bus drivers, custodians, teachers. More guidance comes from the County Office of Education. Then you've got what I always call the great school board in the sky. That's the State Board of Education. And who the hell knows what they do? The governor appoints that board, but voters choose the Superintendent of Public Instruction, or SPI. A lot of people have said, even me who once ran for SPI, eliminate that position. Add on the Senate and Assembly Education Committees, and you can understand why parents frustrated with school closures might wonder where exactly to point the finger. Romero, a vocal charter school advocate in L.A., has an answer. Despite how convoluted that is, the governor has the bully pulpit. Critics of the school deal say Newsom should have used executive power to suspend bargaining with unions and order teachers back to class. 
Pat Riley is a Democratic consultant and parent advocate with Open Schools CA. Having individual school districts try to negotiate with their labor partners, it's like setting off a bunch of brush fires across the state. So why did the idea of local control, a popular refrain in Sacramento, carry the day in the legislature? Santa Cruz Democratic Senator John Laird says creating requirements to fit massive urban districts and small rural communities would just slow down the process. There is a uniform standard in this bill. It's flexibility so that the over 1,000 districts in California can open in the way that works for them. And it's not just Democrats. Republicans generally prefer local decision-making, and most GOP legislators voted for the bill. I think it's crucial. I, I think it's, it's essential that we have local control. That's Republican Senator Rosa Licio Choa Bo from San Bernardino. She tells constituents wondering who's in charge of school decisions. You are. You are ultimately in control of your schools. Ochoa Bo, a former school board member in Yucaipa, says change in school policy should be driven by voters, not state mandates. If you're not happy, then lo and behold, go ahead and select and find candidates that reflect your values and your vision of education and get them elected. It's safe to say that with the opening decision on their plate, often overlooked school board elections might get more attention next time around. For the California Report, I'm Guy Marzarati. And in more school news, the state has rejected applications from three school districts in San Diego County that were looking to open middle and high schools. The district submitted their applications, even though the county hasn't reached the less restrictive red tier, which is a requirement for opening middle and high schools. The districts tell the San Diego Union Tribune they feel their applications were denied arbitrarily, as the reasons given are not part of the guidance from the state when it comes to reopening schools. They've tried to appeal, but have been told by state officials that the decision is final. Governor Gavin Newsom, meanwhile, was in the Central Valley yesterday talking about vaccine distribution. KQED's Alex Hall has more. It's been a week since California started setting aside 10% of its vaccine supply for K-12 school staff and child care workers, with a focus on communities hit hardest by the pandemic. At a press conference in early March, an unincorporated community in Tulare County, Newsom said over 200,000 have been vaccinated, three times the state's goal. Meantime, Governor Newsom said plans for a mass vaccination site he promised was coming to the Central Valley are stalled. But he said his office is still trying. Other states, I'll be honest with you, were a little upset that California was the first to get not one, but two large-scale vaccination sites. And until the other states start to get more equitably their vaccination sites, we're struggling to get that third site. Central Valley Congressman Josh Harder responded to the governor's comments, calling for clarity on when and if a mass vaccination site will be coming to the region. In a statement, Harder said California is more than just L.A. and the Bay Area, and it's time that resources be sent to the hardest hit communities instead of the wealthiest and the most politically connected ones. For The California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Early this evening, Governor Gavin Newsom will deliver the annual State of the State Address, this time from Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. The stadium is symbolically important because it has served as a massive COVID test and vaccination site during the pandemic. The governor's address comes as a campaign to recall Newsom from office, continues to collect voter signatures to qualify a recall measure for the ballot. Whether or not the recall ultimately succeeds, the California Republican Party hopes to benefit from it. KQED politics editor Scott Schaefer has this closer look. This past weekend in Vacaville, a half hour southwest of Sacramento, a couple dozen volunteers gathered with recall Newsom signs, waving American flags as passing cars honked in support. Sign and then put your full address is how you register to vote. Michelle Guerra is chair of the Solano County Republican Party. She's here corralling people to sign recall petitions and making sure their voter information is up to date. How long has it been since you've updated your registration, your signature? Have you updated your information? Do you need to change your information? Among those who stopped to sign a petition was David Verza, a 32-year-old Republican who says for him, the recall is personal. My friend group, family group, um, we're having a hard time here and it just feels like Newsom isn't helping us out at all. It feels like he doesn't care. You know, when we see him eating in restaurants and doing stuff like that, it it really uh, shows where his loyalties lie, you know. A week from tomorrow is the deadline for signatures, and recall organizers say they've got more than enough. Jessica Milan Patterson is chair of the California Republican Party. She says while the recall didn't start out as a purely Republican effort, they're all in now. We saw that there was a movement there, and we joined onto it because it's the right thing to do for Californians. And for the Republican Party. Patterson says the recall is a chance to showcase the GOP as an alternative to Democratic policies voters don't like, from the pandemic to the death penalty. It's also a way to engage volunteers in what was supposed to be a relatively quiet year as far as politics goes. We've done about a million phone calls chasing the um, signature Uh, petitions from individuals who should have received it and getting those back in. So keeping the volunteers engaged in a quote-unquote off year um, is phenomenal. The Republican National Committee has kicked in $250,000 toward the recall effort, and it looks like money won't be a problem if the recall qualifies for the ballot. Randy Economy, yep, that's his real name, is the official spokesman for the recall campaign. He's a former Democrat turned independent turned Republican, and he insists the recall is nonpartisan. I know that the Republican Party structure has um, decided to get involved in the campaign. Of, Of course they are. We couldn't stop them from doing that. Everybody has the right to get involved. But our campaign is not based upon, um, you know, the wishes of the Republican Party or its Republican Party operatives. At the same time, economy acknowledges. 
some of our greatest uh, volunteers are, you know, chairmans of the of individual county Republican parties up in Nevada County or El Dorado County or Alameda County. Political operative Ann Dunsmore is a consultant for the recall campaign. She says, if nothing else, the effort to get rid of Newsom puts Democrats on the defensive while giving the GOP an opportunity to reach voters who might not otherwise be receptive to their message. They're certainly using it as an organizing tool. Um, It's certainly catching fire. There's certainly a benefit to it. And you can see it because all the county parties are starting to surf that wave. Republican consultant Rob Stutzman, who worked on the 2003 recall of Governor Gray Davis, says this gives Republicans a chance to talk about how they would govern the state differently from Democrats. And as long as, you know, Trump-related candidates stay out of it, they're not talking about Donald Trump. So it's a very good opportunity uh, for the party to grow beyond its current base. Meanwhile, Governor Newsom is hoping that by the time the recall election happens later this year, the pandemic will be in the rearview mirror and that voters will be in no mood to replace him with a Republican. For the California Report, I'm Scott Schaefer. In Kern County, the Board of Supervisors unanimously passed a controversial ordinance last night allowing the addition of 40,000 oil and gas wells over the next 15 years in the county. But before they voted, the supervisors heard an earful at eight hours of public comments. Mari Bolaños with Valley Public Radio has more. The majority of comments were against the ordinance. Resident Daniel Rez said he'd read dozens of studies about the harmful effects of oil and gas drilling on people living nearby. My wife is pregnant, and as an expectant parent, I worry about increased oil and gas extraction in my community. I worry about what that might do to our child, both before and after they're born. But county officials argued the ordinance provides environmental mitigation that did not previously exist. Resident Danny Gracia said he's made a good career in the oil industry. My intention is coming into the oil field to provide a good life for my families, like my brothers and friends. I did more than that. I made a career out of it. I gave my family more than I ever imagined. The ordinance requires local oversight of oil and gas drilling permits in the county, in addition to permits from the California Geologic Energy Management Division. For the California Report, I'm Mari Bolaños. And finally this morning, you might have seen some of the early striking images sent back by Perseverance, the latest NASA JPL rover to land on Mars. To honor a barrier-breaking California science fiction writer, the space agency has now renamed the rover's landing site inside a Martian crater after Octavia E. Butler. The author of such books as The Kindred and The Parable of the Sower, Butler, who died in 2006, was the first black woman to rise to prominence writing science fiction, winning the Hugo and Nebula Awards. The Pasadena native was also the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Fellowship. In naming the site after Butler, NASA noted her sensitive exploration of race and gender in her writing and how she helped inspire young people of color to enter the science and engineering field. And that's the California Report for Tuesday, March 9th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. Support for the California Report comes from the law firm Perkins Cooey, a trusted legal advisor to innovative companies and industry leaders throughout California and the world. Learn more at PerkinsCOIE.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And hint, 
fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors, like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories, in stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.